Lord, how true it is that we have been given a firm foundation in your word, for it is your word that gives us hope, it is your word that declares the wondrous gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we think about maturity today, what it means to grow up into Christ, Lord, ultimately, it's about staring at Jesus, looking to Jesus, running to Jesus. I pray that we would be both confronted and encouraged by your truth today, and as your speaker, I pray you would help me to be clear in presenting your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Go have seats. I was encouraged the first time I preached pretty quickly after my initial hire on my way up in the summer, I stumbled on the steps. I made it up here today without stumbling, which is good. Some growth. Well, well, growth is an expectation that is built into the fabric of our human existence. The assumption that something healthy and alive will continue to grow and mature over time. And we can think about lots of examples of growth around us. I love sports. A sports team that assembles a unique mix of young talent with the wisdom and and guidance of a purposeful coach, given time to practice together, play together, experience highs and lows together, ultimately progresses into competing for and possibly even winning a championship. Or we could think of a seed planted in the ground if the soil has proper nutrients and water and sun are plentiful, will spring up as a shoot and year by year grow a little wider and a little taller until it finally produces fruit for either animals or humans to enjoy. Or maybe the best example, a baby that is born uh, properly nourished uh, moves from being in a helpless and utterly dependent condition into a toddler who can run around and feed himself, to a child who learns to read and write, into a teenager that begins to make moral decisions, and finally on into full adulthood, contributing in helpful and meaningful ways to society. Yes, growth is a wonderful and even assumed reality. We take it for granted, and and when it happens the way it's supposed to, it's wonderful and beautiful to behold. But as much as we anticipate growth to happen, it can be quite jarring and quite shocking when it doesn't. That aforementioned sports team, that, that for all the hope and all the promise, never comes together and realizes its collective talents, leaving fans to wonder, what might have been, or that plant that's been neglected and not paid attention to by the gardener, now standing brown and broken 
and brittle in the pot. Or, probably most tragic, we think of the, the image of a child who is malnourished, uncared for, who will never experience the maturity of human development that we subconsciously expect. And the tragedy of these examples is this. A lack of progression into maturity ultimately results in death of some kind. Death of expectations, death of possibilities, or even physical death. Now, something that is alive and healthy must grow and mature. And if growth and maturation are not taking place, it may be soon shown that life is not present. And just as people are expected to exhibit certain physical characteristics in keeping with natural growth, there's reasonable scriptural expectation for believers to grow spiritually. And this is going to be the compelling point the author to the Hebrews is going to make in our passage today. A professing believer stuck in spiritual infancy is in grave danger of falling away from his profession of faith. Or to put it a different way, we all must be growing up into maturity lest we risk apostasy. Let's read our text and see the warning and encouragement God has for us today in his word. We're going to begin in chapter 5, verse 11. And if you're using the Bible in the pew in front of you, this will be on page 1003. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Well, this passage before us brings us face to face with the third of five so-called warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And this renewed warning is going to extend beyond today. We're going to be stopping in verse 3 of chapter 6 today. Uh, Pastor Trent is going to continue the warning through verse 8 next week. And thus far in our study of Hebrews, we've come across two warning passages. The first, in Hebrews 2 verses 1 through 4, we were given a warning to always be paying closer attention to Christ lest we drift away from the great offer of salvation that we have in him. And the second warning, a longer one, Hebrews 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13, we were given the warning to heed God's voice today, implying urgency, lest we fail to enter his promised rest through Christ. 
Now, in in both of these cases, these two previous warnings, uh, the first generation of Israelites brought out of slavery from Egypt are put forth as a negative example of what not to do. Uh, The truth of God's person and the truth of God's power were on full display, full display before them. And yet, they turned away in unbelief, fell dead in the desert, never to enter that promised land of rest. And as we embark in our study of this third warning passage today, it's imperative that that we remind ourselves that these warning passages in Hebrews are not to be seen as standalone cautions, as if each were addressing a different issue. Rather, all five passages are meant to be seen as a unified whole, each contributing a new vantage point or a new angle to the primary warning, the danger of not persevering in the faith, falling into apostasy, and missing God's great salvation in Christ. And we must also keep in mind that these warnings are prospective, looking forward to what could or what might happen As Thomas Schreiner notes very astutely, I quote, The author does not cast a glance backward retrospectively and indict them because they have fallen away. He admonishes them lest their sluggishness will lead them to fall away. Falling away from Christ is apostasy, which slams the door shut against the Christian gospel and turns to something or someone else for a source of life. The author of Hebrews, then, does not accuse his readers of already committing apostasy. He warns them most severely about the consequence of moving in such a direction. End quote. We need to remember the recipients of this letter were facing, in their day and age, many pressures to not persevere in the faith. The pressure to revert back to Judaism and the law as their grounds for relationship with God, along with the pressure to shrink back from publicly following Christ because of the very real threats of persecution. And if we think about it, if we're honest with ourselves, those are very much our pressures today. If we're not holding fast to Christ, we can be tempted to turn back to human religion thinking that it is our good works that make us acceptable or give us value in God's sight, or uh, living in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the truths of God's word, we can be tempted to compromise or stay silent because we want to avoid the world's crosshairs being aimed at us. We need this good word today, just as the original readers Desperately needed it in their day. Uh, Today's sermon is going to break naturally into two parts. Uh, In the verses that conclude chapter 5, we're going to consider the marks of spiritual immaturity. And then in the verses that follow in chapter 6, the first three verses, we'll investigate the means of spiritual maturity. Uh, Fair warning at the outset, uh, just so you don't get a little bit nervous 30 minutes into this sermon, I'm going to be spending the uh, weight of the time considering the marks of 
spiritual immaturity with a little less time at the end uh, talking about the means of maturity. So uh, promise I will be done in about the 45 minutes of a lot of time, but just don't get nervous where I'm at in the outline after a few minutes. Let's dive in. Let's look at this warning passage that begins with addressing a significant problem present in this congregation of the Hebrews, spiritual immaturity. And as the author addresses his audience here with the problem of spiritual immaturity, he's going to show them and us three marks of spiritual immaturity that we need to be on guard against in our lives, with the first mark being insufficient progression in spiritual truth. Insufficient progression in spiritual truth. The author begins this passage with the statement, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So so the thing that he has much to say about is the perfect high priesthood of Jesus Christ, which the author started to address in the first 10 verses of chapter 5. Trent preached on this last week. Interestingly, as Dan Kruver uh, pointed out to me uh, this past week, Hebrews is the only book in the New Testament to explicitly refer to Jesus as high priest. And it seems as if the author expected that his audience should have arrived at this conclusion themselves, the, the perfect high priesthood of Christ, through their study of the Old Testament scriptures. But the author is, is now having to take a break from this wonderful teaching about the priesthood of Christ to jolt and to jar and to capture his reader's attention before resuming teaching about this key doctrine, which he will do in chapter 7. In other words, this doctrine of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ is so critical to their maturing in the faith that the author sees no purpose and moving forward with that doctrine until their immaturity is corrected. And the starting point for their immaturity is a lack of desire for spiritual truth. He says that this priesthood of Jesus is hard to explain, not because it's intellectually difficult or hard to put into words, but because these believers had become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing carries with it the idea of being sluggish, dim-witted, lazy. And those are learned conditions. We learn to be that way, resulting from an inattention to the proclamation and application of biblical teaching in our lives. There's culpable negligence here, right? With the author inferring that this dullness of hearing in his listeners was a result of them no longer even trying to understand the truth. As the expression goes, uh, the audience may have been present in body, but they are absent in mind. They might as well have been statues. They're hearing the truth, but they are not internalizing or applying the truth. You use it or you lose it when it comes to spiritual conviction. Truth heard, but not internalized and applied, is is truth that is lost. And this is super relevant to us today. 
hopefully this is not us, but, but there are many Christians who think theology, the, the study of God, is a waste of time. That, that what's truly important is that we love Jesus and love others. Now, is it true that we as Christians ought to love Jesus and love others? Yes, yes, and yes. But I would push back with a question. What will shape what you think about yourself, about others, and about Jesus? What will control what goes into your heart and therefore comes out in your daily life? You see, we all give ourselves to what we find to be the most interesting. And then what we give ourselves to molds us and shapes us. So being bored or disinterested with theology betrays a disinterest in God himself, the one whom we say that we're committed to loving. No, theology matters, and what we believe is evidenced in how we live, especially in the face of trial and persecution. Weak theology shows itself to be superficial in the face of strong challenges that oppose continued commitment to Christ. We need theology. Uh, In Mark Shaw's book, uh, Doing Theology with Huck and Jim, this importance of theology is illustrated in a creative dialogue between Huck and Jim after they had climbed aboard a raft, uh, leaving their past lives behind. And here's the dialogue. After a time, Huck spoke up. What'd you bring food for? Or what'd you bring for food? I'm hungry. Jim unwrapped his bedroll. His worldly wealth was contained in it. Immediately, it was all laid out in full view. There was a hat and some fruit, a pair of socks, a rabbit's foot, and a book. Jim tossed Huck a piece of fruit. What'd you bring a book for? Asked Huck with a tone of irritation. To read, said Jim, rolling up the blanket again. What else a book good for? Didn't think you could read, Huck said, and then wished he hadn't. I can read, Jim responded with intense seriousness, gazing into the night. What kind of book is it? Huck asked. Book about theology, Jim said, his voice trailing away. Theology? I hate theology almost as much as I hate schools and rules, Huck said, and emphasized the point by spitting into the river. What good is a theology book on a trip like this? Jim was silent for a long time before he answered. Trip like this is long. A lot of things going to happen. Might come in handy. Yes, indeed, Jim is right. Doctrine, theology, might come in handy. As we make decisions in life based on what we think and what we believe about God. So are you Huck or are you Jim? Oh, might God increase our desire to keep pressing on into the knowledge of him and his truth. And a lack of interest and desire for spiritual truth naturally leads to an insufficient progression in spiritual truth. The author speaks of his audience and their need for someone to teach you again 
the basic principles of the oracles of God. Uh, These oracles of God could be understood to be Old Testament scripture, which they had at their disposal, interpreted in light of the death and exaltation of Jesus Christ. We could also see these oracles of God as the ABCs of faith. And the author is going to spell out what some of these basics are in the first couple of verses of chapter 6. But here's the point. As a result of these Christians not desiring to give attention to spiritual truth, they had actually regressed. They had fallen back into a shallow understanding of spiritual truth to the point that even the basics of the faith needed to be taught to them over and again, which leads the author to declare these believers with a shallow understanding of spiritual truth as needing milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Think about it. These believers are now being described as spiritual infants. This quite grotesque image of an adult infant still in diapers, sucking his thumb, sipping from a bottle, unconcerned with the rich and meaty foods at the adult table. The comparison is meant to shock and offend his listeners, hopefully eliciting from them a response such as, I am no baby. Now, milk is wonderful and needed. And it is right and good to offer an infant milk, just as it is right and good to offer a new believer instruction in foundational truth. The problem in offering a mother's milk is to a child who's now ready for solid food. That's the problem. And we really got to be careful here. I think many misunderstand uh, this comparison of milk to solid food. The writer is not arguing that milk is the gospel and that solid food is some deeper knowledge of God. That once you get the gospel taken care of, you can then move on to serious matters like understanding revelation or the Trinity. No, the gospel is both milk and food. The saving work of Christ is milk and solid food. Now, solid food differs from milk in that it explores the depths of the gospel. It's drilling down deep into the gospel so that it pervades our lives as we truly understand the work of Christ and keep understanding more and more every day the work of Christ as our prophet, as our priest, as our king, and the power of our union with him. Solid food is a deeper understanding of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. We could say the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And solid food is pushing, pushing, pushing into the whole counsel of God so that we're able to see the glorious gospel of our salvation across all the pages of Scripture from beginning to end. But this audience 
in Hebrews had stopped desiring more of of these infinite riches of Christ. It was as if they had taken out their spiritual drill, drilled beneath the surface just a little bit, got what they needed or what they thought they needed, and then stopped and said, that's enough, I'm good. And this is a glaring sign of spiritual immaturity, thinking that you have had enough or gotten enough of Christ. And the language here also warns us against regression. It could be literally read as, you have become having need of milk, not solid food. See, they had begun to eat the solid food, but were now back to the bottle, which needs to serve as a powerful reminder that that we are either progressing forward into maturity or we are regressing backward into infancy. There's no middle ground. Status quo Christianity is an illusion that we have created for ourselves. And with all this comparing of spiritual immaturity to being like a child, we also need to make a note that there's a difference between childlike faith and childish faith. Faith that is childlike honors God. It takes God at his word just as a trusting child relies and depends on his father. Faith that is childish is different in that it acts contrary to the maturity that it should possess after being exposed to the rich things of God. And these believers in our passage today had childish faith, not the good kind. They were spiritual infants. They weren't putting into practice what they had learned. They were children unskilled in the word of righteousness. So the word of righteousness, I believe this is best seen as both being doctrinal and practical, the word of righteousness. If one is to increasingly feed on the solid food of the word, on Christ Jesus himself, there must be, on the one hand, a doctrinal understanding of the imputed righteousness of Christ, but there also must be a practical application of righteous living. They go hand in hand. Uh, One begets the other. Uh, A right understanding of one's righteousness being in Christ alone leads to a life that lives out the righteousness of Christ through the power of the Spirit in a believer's life. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we taking advantage of the biblical truth afforded to us and advancing in the faith by going deeper into the person and work of Jesus Christ each and every day. And because of that, are we then looking more and more like our Savior in word, thoughts, and action each and every day? And if not, we run the risk of regressing into spiritual infancy, which is not a place a Christian should return to. In fact, nowhere in the Bible do we see a legitimate excuse for spiritual regression. No trial, no difficulty, no temptation 
is given or put forward as an excuse for going backward in our faith because, as we see all over the New Testament, we possess the Spirit of Christ. So we've seen how immaturity is marked by a lack of desire for spiritual truth, which then results in an insufficient progression in spiritual truth. These realities then lead to a second mark of immaturity being useless to others in the body of Christ. Being useless to others in the body of Christ. The author now is going to scold his audience with this rebuke. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. It's important that we recognize anyone, anyone who is a maturing believer in Christ ought to be able to teach and lead others by word and example toward maturity. All mature believers, all maturing believers should be teachers, Uh, not necessarily public teachers of the word, but disciple makers, disciple makers. The healthy church congregation should consist of willing and maturing disciples of Christ who are training up newer and less developed disciples, right? We, we, for, for the glory of God, we grow in our faith both for our own sake and for the sake of the body of Christ. Do we need our elders and our pastors to publicly proclaim the word of God to us? Yes, but that is not enough. We also need to be taught and helped along in our faith by one another. And because of the length of time and the foundational teaching this audience in Hebrews had received, they ought to have been at the point of maturity to be able to teach others. And whether you are young or whether you are old, I'm not just speaking to those who are over 40 today. I'm not just speaking today to those who are over 30 or over 20 today. Whether you are young or old, if you've been in the church for any length of time and are growing in Christ, you ought to be prayerfully looking for ways to assist others in the body of Christ toward maturity and growth. Unfortunately, a clear sign of their immaturity and potentially ours was they were incapable of helping one another along in the faith. And worse yet, though they should have been able to teach one another, the author says they need to be taught again. Emphasis on again. They had even forgotten the things that they should have taken to heart and known by heart already. I taught middle school math for a number of years. A noble profession. And how pathetic would it be if I, as a middle school math teacher, needed someone to teach me again basic single-digit addition and subtraction? In, In a similar way, these believers ought to have been fully capable of helping one another progress in their relationships with Christ, but they were actually in need of being taught the basic principles of the faith all over again. And this lack of 
maturation and understanding the truth of the scriptures then leads to the third mark of immaturity, being unable to discern between good and evil. Unable to discern between good and evil. Mature believers ought to be so grounded in the truths of Scripture that they're able to teach others, and they're also able to discern truth from error. They've fed on the solid food, moved on to maturity, whom the author describes as those who've had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, this rendering in the ESV is okay, but it could wrongly imply that it's through practice at decision-making that we gain discernment. But as many of you who have a high level of ability in any discipline know, it's not practice that leads to growth in a particular skill. It's good and focused practice that leads to development. Bad practice doesn't profit anything. So in this context and in the original language, practice is actually better understood as state or a condition. In other words, because of the mature condition that is present in the word-saturated, Christ-centered believer who has the good practice of studying, internalizing, and applying the truth, they naturally know how to discern between good and evil. It's intuitive to the mature believer. Practice doesn't lead to discernment between good and evil. Spiritual maturity produces discernment. Or to say it another way, it's maturity which leads to spiritual discernment being the believer's natural practice. Distinguishing between good and evil shows that maturity has taken place. And sadly, this group of believers in Hebrews was unskilled in the word of righteousness. Uh, Correctly applying the word of righteousness would result in spiritual maturity, which they did not have. And spiritual maturity would result in discernment, which they also didn't possess. One commentator noted that the listener's reluctance to press on as believers perhaps because of an unwillingness to suffer further, or maybe due to a desire to remain in the comfortable confines of Judaism, prevented them from working out the deeper implication of the gospel in their lives, resulting in a lack of spiritual and moral discernment. Here's the point. Perpetually infant Christians, perpetually infant Christians, are unable to discern between genuine and phony expressions of faith between the sound and the dangerous, between the spirit of God and the spirits of this age. Those who do not progress in the truths of the faith are tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine, susceptible to false teaching and ultimately, ultimately at risk of unbelief, apostatizing. And it's this lack of discernment that is the great and eternal peril of spiritual infancy, for it puts one in danger of getting swept away by unbiblical ideals 
and turning away from faith in Christ altogether. So there you have it. Uh, The marks of spiritual immaturity. And we think, what's the point here? Well, where there is life, there's growth. And as a professing follower of Christ, and as professing followers of Christ, if we are not more knowledgeable in the faith than we were a year ago, if we're not growing in holiness, our understanding of the Scriptures, and our commitment to Christ, we'd better drop everything and tend to the state of our souls. For immature Christians will not be able to stand when faced with the troubles and hardships that come with following Christ. You see, all believers, all believers, wherever you are in your walk with Christ, all believers must pursue maturity to avoid apostasy. There is no, no permanent state of infancy. A person is either drawing nearer to God or falling away from God. The spiritually immature need to wake up, push deeper into Christ and his word, or their complacency will leave them an eyelash away from apostasy. I thought this morning of uh, the first chapter of Proverbs where Solomon said this, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. And it's this danger of not persevering in the faith That is the theme of all the warnings in Hebrews. And remember, we need to be asking the right questions as we're reading through the book of Hebrews. The question raised by the book of Hebrews is not, can I lose my salvation? That question is addressed elsewhere in Scripture, but it's a question for another day. The better question is, How can I persevere in Christ until the end? That's the question we have to answer. And if we get that question right, we don't have to worry about the former question. Well, what is the solution if you're struck with the realization that that this is you, a spiritually immature Christian? Or maybe, by God's grace, you're moving toward maturity but you recognize the constant threat of regression. The author to the Hebrews does not leave us down, but articulates the means of spiritual maturity in the first three verses of chapter 6, with the first being purpose to know Christ more, or resolve to know Christ more. The author begins chapter 6 by imploring his audience and himself toward maturity with these words. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. We've just spent a lengthy time diagnosing the immature condition. And these believers are now compelled to, to leave the milk behind them and begin partaking of solid food. And I love, I love how the author identifies with his audience here, which he does many times throughout the book of Hebrews. Let us. He's including himself with them. It's as if he's saying, come on, let's go. 
let's purpose to know Christ more together. The God-honoring preacher doesn't just tell his audience what they are to do as if he is somehow above them. No, his words of confrontation and encouragement are just as much for him as they are for his hearers. And when he says, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on toward maturity, as we noted earlier, he's not suggesting that they should leave the gospel behind them and pursue some form of deeper instruction. Rather, these believers need to build on the foundation of key gospel truth by going deeper into their relationship with Christ, by digesting the whole counsel of God continually. I'm not a very good builder, but if you are a builder, especially a builder of homes, you know, we know, foundations are great and necessary for a building. For a building. But once a solid foundation has been laid, you don't need to lay a foundation over and over and over again. Once a foundation is in place, that foundation is meant to be built on top of. And in short, the author is making this appeal to his audience. Are you realizing you're immature? Are you a spiritual infant? Don't stay there. Make a decision to grow up by purposing, resolving to know Christ more. Spend time pursuing Christ and his word. Build up on the foundation you've been given. And I hesitate to give examples. The Spirit works in everyone differently. This could look very different for different people. But I'll throw out a couple. Maybe purposing to know Christ more is scrolling your social media feed less and reading God's word more. Maybe it's meeting with a fellow believer on a weekly basis to discuss a book on theology that you've been reading together. Maybe it's selecting a playlist to listen to you to as you drive around that extols the wonders of Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's prayerfully asking God to do a work in you through his word before you come Sunday morning to hear the preached word. And then going home and thinking and meditating on how to apply it to your life before you turn on football and veg out for the afternoon. That the great Puritan preacher Richard Baxter said the following, love this, make it your work with diligence to apply the word as you are hearing it. Cast not all upon the minister as those that will go no further than they are carried as by force. You have work to do as well as the preacher and should be all the time as busy as he. You must open your mouths and digest it, for another cannot digest it for you. Therefore, be all the while at work and abhor an idle heart and hearing as well as an idle minister. By God's grace, that we would be a church of believers who are never ceasing in devouring, discussing, and applying God's precious truth to our lives, that we might know Christ more. The author then provides us with a list of the basic principles and elementary doctrines that that are essential to our confession of faith, but not exhaustive to our faith. In other words, 
Be certain of the essentials, but don't stop there. Be certain of the essentials, but don't stop there. When speaking of the core elements of our confession that need to be built upon, uh, he lists these following six truths. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, many commentators agree that these six truths were, were likely a catechism of sorts uh, for the early Jewish church. Principles rooted in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, core doctrines that are non-negotiable and form the jumping-off points, as it were, the springboard for all other biblical truth, which, as an aside, serves as a very poignant reminder to us that there is a systematic nature to Christian education, instruction in the Scriptures, a perspective that I'm thankful our, our children's ministry uh, here at Heritage has embraced with its heritage of truth, a collection of foundational biblical truth to be memorized by our children, but hopefully by us as well. Parents, read Pastor Kevin's monthly emails. He reminds you every month of these different heritages of truths to be thinking upon and committing to memory. And be looking uh, for this booklet, uh, just uh, finished up production, Heritage of Truth, that will be given to all families who desire it by the end of the year. Back to the text. Sorry for that commercial. Uh, These six uh, essentials of of scriptural truth that the author just gave us uh, appear to break into three pairings. Uh, The first pairing, repentance and faith, referring to conversion, uh, the starting point of the Christian life, the turning from sin and turning toward Christ. In short, it's the believer being made right with God, the doctrine of justification. The second pairing uh, is a bit more difficult to interpret. Uh, Lots of things were put forward by various scholars as I studied this. Uh, The washings and the laying on of hands. To me, what makes most sense here in the context of what we're looking at, these foundational truths, probably indicates the spiritual renewal signified by baptism and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which in the early church in Acts came at times through the laying on of hands. The Holy Spirit, the promised helper, the indwelling Spirit of Christ who makes growth and maturation in Christ possible. In short, sanctification. The third pairing, Resurrection and judgment, referring to the last things, the eschatological end of time, when Christ will return, our great God will finally, in an ultimate way, deal with sin, righting all the wrongs, ruling forever with his children in the new heavens and the new earth, which we could describe as the doctrine of just as glorification. 
glorification. So we think these three pairings referring to justification, sanctification, glorification, put together, tell the story of the Bible, God's work of salvation in and through Jesus Christ. And note, again, the writer is not relegating these issues to secondary matters. No, no, they are primary, primary in every respect. You have to know the ABCs before you can read, just like you have to know the foundational truth of the gospel before maturing in Christ. No, the, the author's point to his readers here in not laying a foundation again or not laying this foundation again is that they should now be at the place of maturity in their spiritual lives where such teachings, justification, sanctification, glorification, don't need to be argued and defended to them afresh and anew. But consider this, and, and this is, is a powerful thing to consider. It's possible that the lack of maturity in a professing Christian's life is a direct result of that individual not embracing the truth of God's saving work in Christ. So before progressing on to maturity, make sure you actually know Christ as your Savior, as your Lord. You don't personally know Jesus Christ. Spiritual maturity will be an impossible task. The Bible says you are dead in your sins. Come Jesus by faith. But if you're rightly related to God through faith, faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you are alive in Christ. You're alive. And your spiritual maturity and perseverance in the faith are actually guaranteed realities, which bring us to the author's words of confidence in verse 3, where we are encouraged to rejoice in the certainty of perseverance. Rejoice in the certainty of perseverance. These are such good and comforting words to the children of God. The author proclaims, this we will do. Literally, we will do this. We will do this. And this thing that he expresses a clear expectation of them doing is moving forward to maturity together. He says... If God permits, that might not sound very confident. Uh, Maybe it sounds like a shaky confidence at best. Uh, An image of God seated on the throne going back and forth between whether he is going to permit a believer to go on to maturity. But this is where we need the whole counsel of God. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this certainty. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or the words of, of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power, certainty, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. 
Friends, this phrase, if God permits, is not some obligatory Christianese tack-on, but, but an expression of real dependence and real confidence in God to do the work of maturity. And this awareness of God's role in our maturity ought to drive us to be prayerfully expectant of perseverance in our lives. And as we see in the verses following this complete warning passage near the end of chapter 6, the author to the Hebrews is confident that all genuine believers will rise to the occasion. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure certainty of better things, things that belong to salvation, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In the end, we can say that spiritual maturity is a gift given by God. This we will do if God permits, yet it does not remove human responsibility. Earlier, he said, let us leave immaturity and go on to maturity. Or if we were to say it a different way, perseverance in the faith is a promise of grace through the working of the Spirit in the life of every true believer. So in conclusion, we need to be crystal clear that the Bible does not have this provisional category for immature believers who are not growing in their faith. Biblically speaking, we can't be confident of the salvation of those who remain as spiritual infants for an indefinite period of time. And note, I'm not saying that they are not saved, but that we cannot extend the assurance of salvation to them or to ourselves if spiritual infancy is a perpetual condition. The Bible does not leave any demarcation between normal Christians, status quo Christians, and real disciples. No, spiritual growth is an expectation of all believers. And if, if, through the word of God today, if his spirit is, is convicting you of immaturity, or if you just want to be on your guard against regression, which we all should, the author to the Hebrews has given us an obvious solution. Own up to your condition. Recognize the danger that you are in. And resolve, with God's help, to grow up. Apply yourself to the truth. Give yourself to the truth. Train your mind. Get the gospel right. And then advance by faith toward a deeper and more profound grasp and application of who you are in Christ. And then beg those around you to help you on your journey toward maturity and growth. I'll close with this. The key to perseverance and endurance is not some fleeting emotional experience. It's not 
this formula or that program. No, it's men and women of the faith continually nourished by the solid food of the whole counsel of God regarding Jesus Christ who will persevere until the end. Let's pray. Lord, I think of the words of the Apostle Paul in the third chapter of Philippians, where he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, wherever an individual is at today, whether they don't know Christ, whether they are immature in Christ, or whether they are maturing in Christ, I pray that these words would be true, that we would press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I thank you for the work of your spirits, that for the individual has truly put their faith in you, maturation, perseverance is a certainty. Lord, might we be people who press on in the faith through the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.